As we come to 1 Samuel 17, we come to the story of David and Goliath. Let's uh, work our way through this text. I'm going to start in verse 4, read through to the end of verse 11, then pick up again in verse 32, but I'll prompt you as we go. Let's give our attention to God's word. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw up for battle?' Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 32, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him down and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go. And the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took a staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. 
And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took a sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, um, (laughs) what a wild story. Uh, If we were to make up our own religion, if we were to uh, make up a kind of pious-sounding, holy-sounding passage, the kind of thing, you know, that you could read in church, um, we wouldn't have come up with this. And so we ask you to draw near to us and be our teacher. And Lord, we know that you will. We know that you're with us even, even now. And that as you taught your own people through these events so many years ago, you will teach your people again tonight. And so would our hearts be open and receptive to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. David and Goliath, one of the Bible's most famous stories. And frankly, what's not to love? What's not to love about this passage? In the blue corner, we have the hairy-chested giant. Goliath, we're told, is over nine feet tall, and he's loaded with muscles and weapons and self-esteem. We hear him come in a deep, savage voice and deliver some of the Old Testament's best smack talk as he calls upon Israel to provide someone to come and meet him in a duel. This is representative combat. One man from one army, one man from another. The two of them fight and the winner takes all. Well, if he's in the blue corner, in the red corner, red corner, see what I did there? Um, We have the baby-faced shepherd boy. David, he's still the runt of his own family. He's still looking after the sheep and he's been sent as the messenger boy, the delivery boy to his older studlier brothers on the battle line. Yet, as everyone else cowers in fear, we read that David volunteers. And so everything is soon arranged and the runt goes out to take the giant on. Goliath, we read, is incredulous. Incredulous that Israel, uh, he'd requested a a warrior to fight, and they've sent out this gangly young yaf to meet him. And so he's full of disdain, and he calls down curses from his gods, and then promises to feed David to the birds. David, we now read, has some smack talk of his own. Uh, Gives it to Goliath, and it's interesting that in this text, much more time is given to their verbal sparring than to the battle itself. Why? Well, because soon the battle lines are drawn and the fight really doesn't last all that long. Can you imagine, can you not just imagine the Philistines, they're all settling down with their popcorn, okay? This is like Old Testament pay-per-view. It's the big, the big fight. They've been waiting for it all week and they're ready to see their champion tear David from limb to limb. The bell rings and, you know, suddenly the fight is on. And bizarrely, our, our baby face runs right at our hairy chest. It seems like a strange move for such an underdog, but soon he takes a stone, he whirls his sling, and he smokes Goliath right between the eyes. Everyone's surprised. Everyone except David. In fact, we read that he's not even done yet. Continues over to Goliath, and now things get a little grisly. He takes out Goliath's sword, kills him, then cuts his head off. Two 
separate deeds to make sure we understand this giant's really dead. It's fantastic stuff. This is like every wee boy's favorite passage, okay? Uh, Amazing, wild, outrageous, and it's inspired a compelling art. It's inspired beautiful literature. It's inspired some questionable t-shirts, and um, it has also inspired a lot of terrible sermons. A lot of terrible sermons. What do I mean by that? Well, to show you what I mean by that, tonight I'm going to preach two sermons. Now, they're two mini-sermons. Don't worry. First of all, I'm going to preach the terrible sermon we often hear on this text. The terrible sermon we often hear, what we're calling the bad news sermon. After that, I'll preach the gospel sermon we long to hear, the good news sermon. So let's uh, contrast these two approaches to this text, not just because doing so will help us understand the message of this passage and help us apply this passage to our lives, but because understanding how to approach this text will enable us to apply this entire series to our lives as we work through the books of First and Second Samuel. So... Let's do this together. Starting Sermon 1, the terrible message on this text. The terrible message we often hear. Point 1, the bad news sermon. Now, the bad news sermon gets off to a good start because it looks at this text and it says, David and Goliath, this is awesome. An unconquerable foe and a young lad who takes him out with a single blow. Now, friends, don't we all have Goliaths in our lives? Challenges, problems, pains, difficulties that seem insurmountable as we look up at them. What's the Goliath in your life? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's the job that you hate. Maybe it's your addiction. Maybe it's your debt. What is the Goliath in your life? Well, friends, we all have Goliaths in our lives, but dare to be a David. Dare to be a David. Have courage to take on your foe. Have cunning, select the right stones. Be confident, believe that you've got what it takes. You like I even alliterated the terrible sermon. You're welcome, right? Um, You know, if there's a Goliath in front of you, that just means there's a David inside of you. I think I could make some money on this, actually. Yeah, I preach bad real well. (laughs) Um, I'm amped, I'm pumped, I'm ready. It's the motivational shot I was looking for. I can tackle anything in my life. Let's freaking go, right? There's just one problem. Just one problem. You can tackle all the Goliaths in your life. What happens when you can't? What happens when you're not feeling very courageous? What happens when you're not all that cunning and you don't know what to do? What happens when you're not feeling confident? In fact, you're pretty sure you don't have what it, makes, what it takes to get through. Or, or what happens when your best efforts fail? When your stone misses? When all of your stones miss? When you've dared to be a David with all your might, and yet you still haven't been able to slay your own personal giant? You know, you've done your best, but your marriage still ends You've tried really hard, but your boss isn't impressed. You continue to struggle with some kind of addiction, with some kind of of debt. I read a great book last week called When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. 
Uh, he's a neurosurgeon who reflects with a kind of awkward sadness on how he felt when he had to deliver the news to a patient that their condition was terminal, when there was no way back for them. And he shares how, not from the patient themselves, but from the other people in the room, they, they, the relatives would start saying things like, oh, we're going to beat this. We're going to fight this. We're going to make it through. And he'd be sitting there thinking, no, you're not. This kind of awkward sadness took on a, a new depth and a new poignancy when at the age of just 36, he himself was diagnosed with a terminal illness. Within a year, he died, leaving a wife and a young child, a Goliath that he wasn't able to conquer. And you know, sooner or later in life, that happens to us all. Sooner or later, cancer comes, we find ourselves near death, or there's um, some other problem that we feel we can't conquer, we can't get past. And what happens then? What do you do then? Well, you know, if you buy into the bad news sermon, what happens then is, is bad things. Perhaps you feel despair. You know, there's no longer anything I can do. Or maybe you feel guilt or, or kind of shame that, you know, um, maybe this, this has gone wrong and I, I, and I can't do anything about it. So what's wrong, what's wrong with me? Do I not have enough faith? Or sometimes we feel frustration. Why is it that God hasn't done more about this? I feel like our God is letting me down. Why hasn't he helped me out? See, the bad news sermon sounds good at first, but soon... Uh, the motivation that it gives turns into moralism. Motivation becomes moralism as we put ourselves at the center of this story. We see ourselves as David, and then the burden to perform is on us. But if you're here last week, remember what we said last week? The, light, the story of the life of David isn't even about David. So it's definitely not about us. If it's not about David, it's not about me, and it's, it's not about you, it's about the search for a true king, which takes us to sermon number two, okay? Sermon number one, the terrible sermon we often hear in this text, dare to be a David. Sermon number two, the gospel sermon we long to hear from this text. Point two, the good news sermon. Now, the good news sermon comes to this text and remembers that we can't approach it in splendid isolation. This chapter is, is exactly that, chapter in a larger story. And do you remember what's happened in our, in our story so far? Israel called out for a king. Saul became the king of Israel, but his story was quickly one of rebellion and rejection. He rebelled against God, and so God rejected him as king. From there, God anointed David to be the new king of Israel. And so in this chapter, David, our young shepherd king, saves Israel from their arch enemy by defeating this Philistine. Here's the gospel of this chapter. God's anointed king delivers God's people and secures their safety in the promised land. God's anointed king delivers God's people and secures their safety in the promised land. Now, I'm getting ready to do some preaching, okay? Colossians 2, 17, uh, one of the most important verses for our understanding of the Old Testament. Colossians 2, 17 is in the New Testament. It was written by a guy called Paul at least a thousand years after this text. But he, looking back on the Old Testament, says this. These things, the Old Testament, these things are a shadow of of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Interesting. 
The Old Testament is a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And that's what we have in this text. 1 Samuel 17, we have a shadow, David, pointing us toward the substance, not me, not you, but Christ. The shadow who is David pointing us towards the substance which is Christ. So in David, the shadow, we see God's anointed king deliver God's people and secure their safety in the promised land, which points us toward the substance which is Christ, who will ultimately deliver God's people as God's anointed king and secure our safety in that eternal promised land. You see what's happening here? David stands alone, stands alone. He represents God's people to win them the victory over Goliath. And so Christ hangs alone, representing God's people to win us the victory even over death. Now, tell me you see the the difference that makes to this passage. In fact, tell me you see the difference that makes to how we approach the entire Bible. We now understand, don't read the Bible and think that it's telling you to be a hero. Read the Bible and realize it's telling you that you already have a hero. The Bible isn't primarily written to tell you what to do. It's written to tell you all that's been done for you in Christ. We're not the center of the story. Christ is the center of this story. Christ is the center of every story. He said as much himself when he said that all the law and all the prophets speak of him. You want to find yourselves in this text? We are there. But you know where we are? We're in the terrified ranks of God's people, cowering on the sidelines, waiting for a king, waiting for one to come. But our champion now, Christ, has come, stood in our place, conquered our foes. He has overcome. It's not moralism, bad news sermon. It's grace, good news sermon. And grace, as we often say, changes everything. Grace changes everything because you know, oh, I love this. Um, The good news sermon gives us everything the bad news sermon tried to give us, only in a much more robust way. In the gospel, and only in the gospel, you get to have your cake and eat it too, right? Because the good news sermon does make a tremendous difference for our lives, not because it tells us that we must go and conquer, but because it tells us Christ has already conquered. So yes, we still have challenges in our lives, Goliaths, if you like, but we no longer compare them to ourselves. We no longer say, oh, here's my problem, and compared to me, it's huge. Instead, we compare our challenges, our struggles, uh, to Christ. And compared to him, they don't seem so huge compared to the one who has conquered, who has overcome. And this change in perspectives makes all the difference in the world. Just ask someone who's been through this. They'll tell you um, the, pre- the, the difference that the presence of Christ makes. Yeah, it was unbelievably hard when my spouse betrayed me. But Christ has promised never to leave me nor forsake me. Or it was really hard when I lost my job but it made a huge difference knowing that Christ has promised to give me everything I need to do his will. The same for people who've struggled with addiction or with debt or even with our worst case scenarios. One day when it comes and we ourselves will die, we know that our king has crushed the curse of death and will walk us into the promised land. And so the center of this text, Jesus Christ, becomes the center of our lives 
as we measure all our circumstances, not against ourselves, but against him. Our struggles don't disappear, but they certainly don't look the same. Let me try and make this as concrete as I can. By kind of story time, can I tell you a story? A story of the difference, the practical difference between these two approaches, between the bad news and, and, and the good news. So, uh, you know, I was back in Scotland uh, a week or so ago for my grandfather's funeral. And you may also remember that my grandmother has really severe dementia. Severe dementia. And it's a, it's a cruel, inexorable disease. You lose your mind by, by inches. And one of the things that's fascinating about the type of dementia she has is that she loses her memories in the reverse order that she made them. Meaning she doesn't remember anything from five minutes ago. And she remembers everything from 50 years ago. Right? Um, and so there's just amazing scenes happen where I'll be sitting with her, having a cup of tea, and she'll be telling me stories from her childhood. I'll walk out to go to the bathroom, come back, she'll have to ask me who I am, and then pick up, tell me stories from her childhood. <laughs> really kind of strange, disjointed moments. Well, because she remembers long-term things, one of the beautiful things was that she, she remembers my granddad. Okay? And in the hospital, you should have seen them. They were like a couple of you know, high schoolers on a date, holding hands, uh, kissing each other on the cheek. Um, she, she remembers him and remembers him well. But she didn't always remember that he was sick. Right? So she'd come down in the morning, and she'd say, oh, where's Kenny? And we'd say, oh, you know, he's in the hospital. And she'd say, oh, are, are we going to go see him today, and do you think he'll get home today? And this just put us in a hard, such a hard spot because, yes, we'll go see him today, and he's probably never coming home. You know, and so you're wrestling with how do you manage that? How do you orchestrate that? Because, like, do you, do, you know, do you break her heart five times a morning to tell her this, right? And so just sort of doing this, this dance. And then it suddenly struck us, what are we going to do when he dies? How, how are we going to handle that? How, what, what are we going to tell her? Because she needs to know. It's not like a thing we can just always keep that from her, right? But also, imagine finding out five times in one morning that your you know, husband of 60 years just died. Like, we just, it's a nightmare. Well, it turned out that my granddad died on the, the stroke of midnight as Saturday turned into Sunday. And another point, I'll go off on a big long rant about how that is a great time to die and the fairy tale of the gospel come true in your life. But that's for another day. Um, my granddad died as, as Saturday became Sunday, which meant my, my grandmother was in bed. So we all sat around and thought, okay, what's the plan? Let's dare to be a David. We have the courage. Let's have the cunning and uh, some confidence. And, and like, wh- how, what are we going to do here? Well, do you know what? We had nothing. <laughs> we had nothing and we went to bed. Uh, because you know what? We didn't really have what it takes. Well, come the next morning. The house is quiet. And my grandmother wakes up. And she comes downstairs, and we know the questions she's going to ask, because it's the same questions she asks every day. Okay? She comes downstairs, and she sees her son, and she says, he's gone, isn't he? He said, yeah. And she said, oh, I knew. Our house was a silent as this church. And then I heard some laughter from heaven. <laughs> and I heard the Lord saying, hey, hey, hey guys, 
did you think I needed her mind to function in order to love her well? Did you think my ability to give her grace was dependent upon her ability to comprehend what was happening here? Um, Did you think you needed to be David and come up with some courageous, cunning, confident plan? Did you think that I wasn't already all over this? Do you not think that I can love my people well even when you don't understand how? Have you not realized (laughs) that you don't need to overcome because I have overcome already. And that frees us to worship Christ, to worship Christ, to trust him with our lives, to know that whatever comes in, whatever goes out, he will be there and he will provide, that it's not up to us to hurry and make things go well. Friends, it is a terrible day to be a David. And it is a beautiful day to follow Christ. Any of us who come to him in faith recognize our own sin, our own brokenness, our own mess, kind of forgiveness full and free, and then find that he doesn't just leave us, but walks with us and walks us all the way to eternity. Friends, this passage was not written to tell you to be a hero. It was written to tell you that you already have one. Jesus, the true king. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we uh, confess that it's easy for us to be self-absorbed, maybe even a little self-obsessed, so it's easy for us to come to the Bible and make ourselves the center of the text. And so I'm really glad that the Bible's not about us. It tells us a lot about ourselves, uh, but... It's about your son, Christ, and the fierce love that you have for your children. And so we praise you, Lord, that you don't come with a a burdensome charge, a call to perform, but with good news that everything is already done. We pray these things in the perfect name of your son. Amen.